Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading is from Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 through 14. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there spoke, and God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets, It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls, their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a while he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. The New Testament reading is from Hebrews chapter three, verses one through six. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is ever faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. And as you picked up from our Old Testament reading, I'll be preaching in our series on Hosea, picking up where our, my fellow pastors here at church have been preaching through over this past year. And you'll see in Hosea 12 a similar theme that has been wound throughout the book of Hosea. If Hosea, Hosea, one of its main themes is God's demonstration of his love that's undeserved. It's a demonstration of love towards his people despite their idolatries. It's despite their turning from him. 
And the prophecy in chapter 12 has many layers. Each verse contains a theme that's found within the great story of Israel's history. It's appealing to the history of God's people as a means of calling God's people to return to him. Each verse is like a footnote. It's like a footnote referencing a major event in Israel's story. So to recap Hosea a bit more, it's a prophecy to both Israel and Judah, God's people who had been split between the north and the south in Israel. And it's an exhortation to turn from false worship, to turn from the practices associated with that false worship, and to return to God. Intertwined throughout the prophecy is the promise of impending judgment for God's people who refuse to return to him. This morning we're going to look at the pictures and the events within Israel's history that deal most acutely with God's presence with his people. Each of the events that are wound throughout this prophecy dealing with Israel's history, they're references and pictures of God when he met with his people, when he was present in the most tangible ways. It's as if the prophecy is calling out to God's people, remember who you are. Remember where you came from. Remember the presence of the Lord, his redemption. Return to him. Hold fast to him. The prophecy is meant to exhort the people of God to remember this history, to remember the purpose of him calling them out of Egypt, the purpose of him shaping them into a people for himself. There's also heartache that enters here because the deeper the relationship goes between God and his people, the deeper, the more significant the events of when he showed himself to his people, the harder it hits when there's unfaithfulness, when there's betrayal. And you're going to be able to pick up some of that heartache here in the text. That's really one of the main points of Hosea. Look at what God has done, how he's shown up, how he's been there when you needed protection, when you needed his presence. And look at the people of Israel. They've turned to idolatry. They've turned to the practices of idolatry. They've synchronized their lifestyle with the wider culture, not with how God has told them to live. We need to be reminded of who we belong to as well here in 2022. We need to be reminded that we can hold fast to this God who has met with his people. Because God meets with his people, we must hold fast to him. And that begs a question. It's a question we'll be asking through the text. How does God meet with his people? Another way of asking how has God met with his people is how has God's presence been worked out in his relationship with his people? How does God show himself present? How does God show himself present with his people? That'll be our question this morning. Before we dive into this text, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your presence and your power, even experienced here this morning in the gathering of your people. We pray that we would be attentive to your word, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this text. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does God show himself present with his people? The first answer to that question, we're going to look in verses 2 through 6. God shows himself present to his people in the way he turns them to himself. 
And the story begins with, the the prophecy begins with a recounting of the story with Jacob. After, in verse 2, this indictment against Judah, we go into a recounting of the story of Jacob. And it's an appeal by the prophet to view the life of Jacob as instructive for the way the people of God are to relate to him. This requires a little bit of unpacking this, and some of it might be uh, some of it might be very familiar to you. But it starts with Jacob and his name. He was named Jacob, and the name Jacob means at the heel. Not not a very flattering name, but it was named he was named Jacob uh, because he was born at the heel of his brother Esau. He was the second born of twins. And the stories of Jacob from those early years show how that at the heelness of Jacob worked itself out. He was a deceiver. He was a master manipulator. He was always cheating. He cheated his brother out of the birthright. He lied to his father, father Isaac in order to get the blessing that was reserved for Esau. In fleeing the wrath of Esau, after this event takes place, he flees to Aram, he flees to Laban, where he works for a wife, but he's met, he, at least we think he meets his match in Laban, but he out-connives, he out-maneuvers even Laban. Jacob's whole life is marked by a striving after something. He's always striving, tricking, deceiving, chasing but he's never at rest. These are all the things that would have been invoked by Hosea's prophecy to God's people as he recounts the story of Jacob, leading to the climax of Jacob's life, Genesis 32, when he wrestles with the angel of the Lord and where he receives his new name. And I'll briefly state what takes place there because it's so important for our own understanding of what God's calling his people to do. God meets with Jacob in Genesis 32 in a very powerful way. It's the the wrestling match with God. He is about to meet Esau. He's worried about what's going to happen. And he gets in a wrestling match. And it goes on all night. Eventually, the angel of the Lord puts his hip out of socket. But Jacob says, I'm not going to let go until I receive my blessing. That thing he'd been striving after his whole life. He realized in that moment... That this was who could give him what he was striving after. This is who could give him that blessing. The man asks him his name. He says, Jacob. And then the man says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel means to strive with God. Jacob's blessed by that man, and then he names the place Peniel, which means the face of God. And you'll remember he says, I have seen the face of God and have been delivered. The purpose of his striving, the purpose of what he'd been at the heel after, was realized that night in the deliverance he received from the Lord. God turned Jacob from a life of struggle, from a life of striving, that endless grasping to view him, Jacob, to view his relationship with God as the purpose of that struggle. Hosea's prophecy appeals to this plot line of Jacob's life in the strongest way possible. He's saying, be like Jacob, not in his deception, but in his striving after God, viewing God 
as the reason for his striving. Jacob sought God's favor. His whole life was looking for that blessing. And the people of God here in Hosea are being viewed to see their own existence, their own relationship with God in a similar manner. God is the one who delivers. God's the one who turns people to himself. Jacob's story culminates a few chapters later in Genesis, and it's referenced here in verse 4 when Jacob meets God at Bethel. God restates his covenant, his agreement with Jacob, his promises that had been given to Abraham, and he ratifies the name change. You shall now be called Israel. Bethel means place of God. God commanded Jacob to worship him there. And Hosea appeals to that memory because throughout Hosea, we've learned of another house, a house of evil, Beth-Avon, where the tribes of Israel had exchanged true worship for pagan worship. And they did this at a place called Beth-Avon. So the contrast between a place that God had shown Jacob to worship him and the place where the Israelites had gone towards their own synchronistic worship, it's a very stark contrast to the state of Israel's place with God. This all leads to verse 5 when we read, The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. It's a lot of mention about the Lord's name. What does that mean? Well, it's a direct link to Exodus and the burning bush, the story of when God revealed his name to Moses. Moses, at that point, had been going back and forth about his task to bring Israel up out of Egypt. He's saying, what, well, what if, who do I tell him sent me to you? And the Lord says, tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And he goes on to say, this is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. This is his memorial name. The Lord is forever. He's self-existent. God had never revealed his name like that before. Yahweh is his personal name. His name in our English translations is translated in all caps, Lord, L-O-R-D, and there's a backstory for why that is. But the first thing that would have come to mind for the hearers of this prophecy would have been something like Psalm chapter 9, Psalm 9, verse 10. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. To invoke the Lord's name here in the midst of God's people wandering from him in Hosea would have been a comfort to those faithful to the Lord, but also a warning to those who had synchronized their worship, who were engaging in idolatry. It was a warning to them to say, you've forgotten the burning bush. You've forgotten the very moment that God revealed his name to you. He's a personal God. He turns people to himself. This is who God is. And this all points to verse 6. Knowing all of these things, knowing the story of Jacob, knowing that God had revealed himself to Moses, knowing who God is, knowing the story of the nation of Israel, Return to him. That's what, the, that's what Hosea's prophecy is pleading with the people of God. Return to him. And not just return to him, but return to him by his help. 
God is a God who turns people to himself. So don't let anyone ever tell you that the Old Testament is devoid of God's grace. It's very evident here that it's God's grace towards those that seek him, that he himself will help them turn to him. God is a God who turns people to himself. Repentance here, or returning to God, is connected to putting faith in him, holding fast to him, holding fast fast to the things he loves, love and justice. Holding fast to love here is, is not something as elusive as a mantra that really doesn't mean anything. This is connected, this holding fast is connected to the type of struggle that Jacob held on to the angel of the Lord until he blessed him. Holding fast to the loving kindness of the Lord, seeking him in faith. That's what repentance is and that's what the Israelites, the people of God are being called to do. The story of Jacob, the story of God's people, it's a story of those who belong to God. This prophecy is screaming, pleading, calling out that the people are without excuse. Turn back to him. Hold fast to him. So how does God show himself to be a God with his people? He's a God who turns people to himself and he helps them to return to him. He shows he's with his people and how he turns them to himself. Our second point is in verses 7 through 9. God shows himself to be with his people in the way he disciplines them. Verse 7 starts with an indictment of Ephraim. Again, Ephraim is a, a name used to refer to the northern tribes of Israel, those who had broken off from Judah. It's a commonly used name, but here they're being likened to a merchant. They're being likened to the status quo of the Canaanite culture around them, a people who lived in the land of Israel and were the cause of so much of this uh, idolatry and pagan influence that had come into their land. So in making this comment about Israel, it's as if to say, Ephraim, you've actually inherited the corrupt culture of everyone else around you. You're no different. You're not distinct. You've become the, correct, the corrupt ones. You've chosen not to hold fast to love and justice. Instead, you've chosen the deceitfulness of Jacob. You've chosen not to wrestle with God, but instead use false balances, oppress. It's the exact opposite of the call in verse 6 to return to him. Instead, they're getting rich off corruption and claiming that they don't have sin. Not only that, but they're also looking to others to determine the standard of their sinfulness. They don't look to the the word of God, how God has revealed himself. They just look at their success as a justification for there not being any sin, for their dismissal of sin. They're saying we're rich, we're successful, nothing can touch us. They ignored the presence of God. Throughout Hosea, the sins and the unfaithfulness of the people has been documented. They're compared to an unfaithful spouse. They worship idols. They worship Baal, which, who was the, the Canaanite deity. They also enjoyed and practiced all of the practices associated with those pagan worship services. And it's described elsewhere by Hosea as spiritual adultery, a strike against the marriage between the Lord and his people. 
The ultimate act of rejecting God is to act as if he doesn't exist, as if he doesn't have any bearing over our lives. And it would appear that Israel, especially those in the north, and Judah's being warned here, had given themselves over to a type of unfaithfulness that was of a particular abandonment of the God who had shaped them, who had called them out of Egypt, who had made them his own. And they were certainly not holding fast to love. They were certainly not acting and doing justice, the things that are the hallmark of God's intent for his people. All of this is a reason for God to discipline his people. He desired to make himself a people from the very beginning. That's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he disciplines his people. Verse 9 is a promise that God will again make his people dwell in tents. What does that mean? That's another layer to God's story that is of supreme importance for how we are to understand his presence with his people. The layer of the great story we're intended to see here and what the first hearers would have certainly resonated with uh, and recognized as the festival of tents is a holiday called Sukkot. And it's still celebrated in Jewish communities today. It's where folks will set up tents in their yards or on their roofs if they live in urban areas. And it's to commemorate the time when Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. But Hosea here, the prophecy is not indicting the people for getting the celebration wrong. You know, it was, he's not saying, hey, you got the wrong type of tent. They've forgotten the very purpose of the celebration. They forgot the purpose of the festival, which was to remember God's presence among the people when they were in the wilderness. The similar theme Hosea says elsewhere, Hosea 6 says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So they're not merely being chastised here for getting the festival wrong. They've gotten the substance of that festival wrong. They've forgotten it. And the substance of that festival was that, and you can read about it in Numbers chapter 2, God commands the people of Israel to set up their tents around the tent of meeting to face God's presence. Yahweh was present as he led them through the wilderness. And the story of the Exodus, the story of Israel's time throughout the wilderness, it starts in mid-Exodus, the book of Exodus, and it goes all the way to mid-Numbers. So there's a lot of space of our biblical text in that period of time. And that whole time, God is shaping disciplining, forming a people for himself. So it's a humbling promise that God says, I will again make you dwell in tents. It's as if he's saying, you missed the main point or you've forgotten the main point of what I taught you in the wilderness. Revelation 3 has a similar warning to the church in Laodicea. And this time it's Jesus' words. For I say to you, I am rich. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. But then he goes on to say, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. 
the message of Hosea's prophecy is the same to God's people. God is saying, I love my people. I love my people. So you will again be disciplined. The purpose of God's discipline is to, is to turn his people towards repentance and to be zealous for his presence. And we can't miss the connection here. The discipline of the Lord is deeply connected to his presence. They learned that when he would dwell in their midst in the tent of meeting. His holiness, his righteousness, his presence was with Israel. It was the most important thing about them. And that's what they exchanged when they decided to forget it and instead turn to the enticements of whatever false worship they were enticed by, whatever idols that they chose to worship. God is a God who meets with his people and how he disciplines them. Verses 10 through 14 deal with how God shows himself to be a God present with his people and how he speaks to them. God's word is not left without a witness. Verse 10, he says, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. The references to Gilead and Gilgal, they've been described earlier in the book as places where these evil practices were taking place. Their altars are heaps of rubble. It's, it's false. It's a false religion. God's indictment of Israel is that their false religion is as useful as the heap of stones that they claim to be sacrificing on. The irony is that they exchanged the truth they received from their history that had been shaped in them. They exchanged the presence of God for this false worship for wickedness. They disguised it as true religion. Verse 13, there is a reference to two things that are important for our purposes this morning. It reads, by a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. This is the second reference to Egypt in the prophecy. We saw already how the Exodus was referenced in verse 9. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. And then here again in verse 13. One commentator writes that that phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, was as familiar to the Old Testament church, as familiar to the people of God as our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, would be to those of us who grew up learning the Lord's Prayer. This was such a central phrase to the worship of God's people. And the first time it's uttered is just before Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Hosea's hearers, when they would have heard, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, it would have invoked the entire story, the entire story of God's calling his people to himself, of redeeming them from the land of Egypt. The second thing here in verse 13 is that the prophet by whom Israel was guarded was Moses. He was the greatest and the first prophet, and he's the most instrumental, paradigmatic prophet in the Old Testament. Everything else builds on the covenant that he received from God, the law that he received. He was also the one who prophesied that God would continue to send prophets and keep his voice among his people. And most notably in Deuteronomy 18, when he tells the people they should expect, the Lord will raise up a prophet like him 
and that to him you shall listen. Well, we know from the New Testament, in particular our New Testament reading this morning, and from the whole redemptive historical storyline of the Bible, that Jesus is that greater Moses. Jesus' project of guarding and redeeming his people never changed. He brought them out of Egypt. He kept sending them prophets. They were exiled. The people who received this prophecy in Judah, they were later exiled. But we see this promise that God continues to speak to his people. This promise for a prophet fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God meeting with his people, his turning them to himself, his disciplining them, his continuing to speak to them. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And it's as the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus was worthy of more glory than Moses. For while Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, Jesus is faithful over God's house. The purpose of Hosea, the purpose of Moses, the purpose of Jacob striving after, seeking after God was for God to make a people for himself. And in Christ, we see that arc of redemptive history find its pinnacle. The entire great story of God pursuing his people, of meeting with them, desiring presence to be with them, it was all for the purpose of showing them, of showing you and I, our great need for his presence, our great need to be reconciled to him. You, know, you and I may have never been to Egypt. Some of you may have been there, but we've never been called up out of Egypt the way the Israelites were. We've never been exiled from our home to Babylon for 70 years. But I'd venture to say that we have experienced the type of spiritual exile, the type of spiritual divorce, a sense of striving after something, grasping after something to justify ourselves with. But it's only in Christ that you can see that the presence of God is the only thing that can satisfy your deepest need, your most intractable longing. The presence of God is what Hosea is calling Judah to recognize. Don't you see? This is the most important thing reconciliation to this God. He has spoken to us. Turn to him. Jesus is the greatest Moses because only through him is presence with God possible. One of the, the, the defining features of, of Moses' ministry is that when he would speak to God, the people of Israel could not look at him because his face was shining so brightly. They physically couldn't look at Moses because his face was shining. The immediate presence of God was heavily mediated through Moses. But in Christ, through his atoning sacrifice, the presence of God is mediated to us through him. We have access to him because of Christ. This passage in Hosea ends with a sobering reminder that the consequences of rejecting God, sinning against him, we see it in verse 14. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt out in him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. The consequence of sin is death. So this section of the prophecy, we can see both how God recounts the sending of his prophets, who all really had one main message, return to God, and the consequence of not returning to God. Judgment is rightly coming to Ephraim because they had continued to provoke God 
by doing what was contrary to his word. They were doing the exact opposite of love and justice. Yet there's hope. Judgment is never the end of the story. God's judgment against his people is meant for discipline. It's the outworking of the consistency of his character. God disciplines those he loves. Judgment is meant for restoration. And most importantly, restoration of a right relationship with the eternal Father. That presence of God that Israel experienced in the wilderness while they lived in tents, that presence is powerful. And it animates everything about the story of the Bible. If you're here this morning and you don't know this God, but perhaps you felt in your life you have been striving after something. You've been grasping, chasing, reach, reaching out for something. Perhaps you've sensed that feeling of spiritual exile, disconnection from God. Find rest in Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus can you be reconciled to God. And here's the good news. It's by his grace that you can receive the faith to trust in him. For you who are in Christ, this is our great hope in Jesus, that the presence of God is mediated to us through Christ. We celebrate and engage with this presence every Lord's Day when we, like Israel, face the Lord's table. His presence is real and it's powerful. Don't take it for granted. This gathered people of God, we, we must never take that for granted. Remember the Israelites who faced the tent of meeting. God had redeemed them. They owed him everything. God has redeemed you. He disciplines you. He speaks to you through his word. Hold fast to his love. Live and act justly. Wait continually for him. Let's take the cautionary warning given to Ephraim here. The hearers of this prophecy, they were being given this cautionary warning of what had happened in the north to Ephraim who had turned from God. Let's take the cautionary warning to heart knowing that repentance unto life is a gift of God's grace. Returning to God is where a sinner recognizes his or her sin against God. Recognizes their great need for the mercy of God. And does grow in a sense of grief and hatred for our own sin. And then turns from it to God with an endeavor, a purpose to endeavor after a new obedience. For those of you, maybe like me, who hear a passage of judgment and warning or read the book of Hosea, calling his people to return to him. If that scares you because the thought of discipline, the thought of judgment is scary, and we immediately think of things like, where does that put me with God? Know that one of the benefits of being made right before God, the benefits of being made his child, the benefits of his investment in renewing you day by day, one of the benefits that we receive in Christ is that the promises of God persevere all the way to the end. They persevere to the end, even through the discipline that we might be undergoing from the Lord. God disciplines those he loves for the purpose of restoration. How has God been disciplining you? 
Can you reflect on periods of your life in which you can sense the Lord's discipline and see how it chastised you and it restored you and brought you into deeper repentance? Where do you need to repent of indwelling sin in your life? Where do you need to endeavor towards a new obedience to our Heavenly Father? I love that word endeavor. I'm not the only one that loves that word. Uh, but that word endeavor that shows up in a lot of places in our, in our literature as a church, it denotes a type of holding fast. It denotes a type of struggling with God and holding on to him for blessing. It's a struggle that's not contrary to the word of God, but indeed what we're called to do, to endeavor. Jefferson mentioned this morning in our Sunday school lesson that it's a tragedy that in many of our experiences in evangelical churches in our country, we stop at the cross. We don't start continuing to talk about the endeavoring towards a new obedience, the struggle that we're called to partake in. Endeavor. Hold fast to him. In any discussion of a spiritual, of an exile or any discussion of the exodus, we have to spiritualize it. Because we haven't been through that. And indeed, we're meant to spiritualize it. It's a paradigm for the redemption we've received in Christ. But I was struck this week, like many of us were, keeping up with events in Russia and Ukraine. And I came across a video clip of Ukrainian Christians gathered in an apartment building singing together, He Will Hold Me Fast. They were singing in Ukrainian, but the subtitles and the tune, we, I, I could recognize it. But there's no spiritualizing going on for them. They are tangibly reaching out and desiring to experience God's presence with them. Many of us may not have experienced something similar to what Christians that part of the world are experiencing even right now. Holding fast to God, waiting for him continually, it takes on a very physical sense of importance of the presence of God. Well, God's presence is no less real to us here this morning in Connecticut. We're connected to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine through what Preston just referred to, that mystical communion of the body of Christ. God's presence is with us. And in Christ, God is with his people in the way he turns them to himself, in the way he disciplines us, in the way he speaks to us through his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence, Lord, and for reconciling us to yourself by your son, Jesus. We pray that we would endeavor, Lord, to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.